dwells in Zion. The, the Lord dwells in Zion. Uh, we've been looking at the book of Joel <clears throat> this month of August. And we did that in three parts. The uh, section one, the first week, we saw the historical component of it where the locust plague had come. There was no locust plague like that ever. Like four centuries, they had not seen anything. Uh, two ahead, and even they will continue to tell the children's children. And then last week, we saw it, it part of chapter 1 and chapter 2, the transition. We called it the 13-minute tornado warning that God is saying, listen, this plague that you uh, experienced of the locust is just a sign. There's something more coming, and you have time now. And we saw the repetition in chapter 1, verse 14, and chapter 2, verse 15, calling uh, a solemn uh, assembly, gathering, uh, consecrating a fast and calling a solemn assembly. And we saw that, you know, this personal brokenness and corporate repentance, that we have to come together to understand that unless we are broken uh, of our individual sins and come together in that corporate repentance, uh, God, um, I mean, that's the only solution that God has given them. And today we want to see part of chapter 2, and chapter 3, and, and it's about the future. Every language, uh, the language that is used there in every verse you will see, it's something about the future, something beyond, and we want to see what it is that Joel has for us, and how do we understand uh, that to our context, uh, because Joel is writing to the nation of Israel, is saying what nation of Israel is going to experience, what the enemies of the nation of Israel are going to experience, and we will see what are the implications for us. Now, when you talk about a day of the Lord, and that's what we have uh, titled the sermon series, and when you say day of the Lord, we, we automatically attach it to Joel because he's the one who speaks most about uh, the day of the Lord. And uh, the... The passage that we have before us is the one that's often used. Mostly it is, um, it is misunderstood. It's distorted. You know, the fact that we say the old shall see dreams and the young shall see visions. We have this very incomplete understanding. And we want to try and understand what is it that Joel was saying. And I remember when I was in um, Sunday school and we had this, uh, I forget the entire context, but they were talking about, the, about God's wrath and the day of the Lord. And, and my question to the Sunday school teacher was that if, if the day of the Lord is, um, you know, fearful, if it is something that we have to be, care, you know, so uh, it, it's dangerous because it's the wrath of the Lord, why are we so excited about the coming of the Lord? And he said... And I paraphrase, to the repentant, it'll be joy, but to the rejecters, it'll be judgment. And we saw that that is what Joel has been saying, that if you repent, then you have uh, uh, salvation. But if you reject, then the judgment is upon you. 
And uh, when we think about Joel, again, we, we have the stories of visions and dreams, and we, we've been hearing that recently, right? We hear, all, uh, hear how in the Middle East there has been these visions and dreams, and people are turning to the Lord, and, and, um, and, and it's wonderful that's happening. I, in fact, came across one person in Bahrain when I was there who came to know the Lord through a vision because I called him to my office. He, he used to work for me, and, and he was not of a Christian um, uh, faith. He wasn't, a, you know, he wasn't born into a Christian family, and I heard that he started going to church. I started talking to him, and I, he, he said one of the most beautiful uh, testimony of how God himself gave him that dream, and then, and then how he went searching, and he found somebody who shared the gospel, and, and he got saved. Uh, one of the other stories that comes to my mind is about Bilky Sheikh. I'm not sure if you've uh, read that story of our dare to call him father. She was born into a wealthy Muslim uh, family in Pakistan. She was the wife of an interior minister of Pakistan. And God gave this dream of himself, of John the Baptist, of his son, Jesus Christ, and of the Holy Spirit. And she recognizes that this, this is something. And so she goes, finds a Bible, and believes the Lord Jesus Christ at great risk because her family is about to kill her. They burn down the house, but she still escapes, uh, you know, and then she goes up to the U.S., and that's where she wrote this book, uh, Our Dare to Call Him Father, because they could never imagine that they could call God their father. Uh, and so this personal intimacy. But I, I do want to say that even though we speak so much about dreams and vision, in some sense, in that sense, this is not what Joel is talking about. It's not the dreams and the visions that we have been encountering through stories. And so we need to understand that difference. We're excited about the fact that people are coming to know the Lord, but the context here is something that we need to understand. And I, I, I titled this sermon... Our arms are too short to box with God. Our arms are too short to box with God. The idea is, you know, if you have two people who are boxing and you have this big guy with those long arms, he's actually held the person's, you know, by his head, and the other guy's trying to reach, but, you know, can't reach the end because his arm is too short. And that's the idea. Now, this is taken from a, a sermon titled... Um, by James Johnson. He had actually written uh, seven sermons. And about the prodigal son, this is what he said, young man, young man, your arms are too short to box with God. And that's, that's where the line is taken out. And it's also a Broadway musical on a book uh, of Matthew. But to remember this title, that is what I want to you know, bring our attention to, that our arms are too short to box with God. All right, so keep that in mind, and, and keeping that in mind, let's go to see what it means when Joel is saying to us about the day of the Lord. And it's important that we understand this, uh, we have a good understanding of this day of the Lord. It's a matter of life and death, really. And so we look at that. So let me give you two quotes before, uh, as a way of starting. One is by Constable. Constable says the term, the day of the Lord, seems to have risen from a popular concept that in the ancient Near East that a really great warrior king 
could consummate an entire military campaign in one single day. It talks about a powerful king who with suddenness and severity destroys his enemies, and they would call it the day, or the, the day of the Lord. Um, but that's what Constable is saying. But see what Jeffrey E. Miller uh, says. No one prophet discusses the day of the Lord in such a way as to draw out all of its implication. The day of the Lord is understood by the Jews and expressed in the prophets is a multifaceted concept. There are five things that we need to keep in mind when we talk about the day of the Lord. One is nearness of the day, the judgment of the day, terror of the day, call to repentance, and restoration of of God's people. So when you talk about day of the Lord, we must understand that there are all of these things that are coming to play. There is the suddenness, there is the severity, there is this judgment, there is the fact that there is restoration that needs to happen, and we have to understand that this is what is called the day of the Lord. Now the day of the Lord is the day of the Lord. It's his day when he uh, takes action. And also, we must understand that it's not a 24-hour period. It's the day of the Lord as a, as a time when God will do his work uh, of bringing judgment and, and also show mercy on his people. Now, it's also known by other names. One of that is Jacob's distress. In Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, we see the phrase, Jacob's distress. In Daniel chapter 9, it's called the Daniel's 70th week. And as you look at chapters in Revelation from 6 to 19, we also see that towards, uh, this is... Uh, this is also what happens in the second half of the tribulation, the great tribulation. We talk about uh, a day of the Lord. We must understand it's not only Joel who's actually talking about it. Uh, Obadiah, Joel, Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Ezekiel, Malachi all talk about it. Even Moses alludes to it in Exodus 32:34. He says, So now go, lead the people to the place I have spoken to you about. See, my angel will go before you, but on the day I will punish, I will indeed punish their sin. And the reason I bring this to you is this. There's been multiple warnings in different ways. God is saying, listen, I am going to do something, and that's going to be very severe. Your enemies are going to be destroyed. The, the ones who reject me, they will be destroyed, but there is blessing for those who seek me. And, um, and for Israel, the, the covenantal truth that Israel would, be, uh, would receive blessing as they seek him and their enemies would be destroyed. But it's unfortunate, as we saw last, last week, that even though Israel was given the time saying that, listen, be warned, they did not accept the warning, and they had to go off into exile, and they went through all of those difficulties, and yet God does not break his covenant. And that's the truth that we recognize even now, that people find it difficult to listen, to recognize what God is saying is true, that he will destroy the, those who stand against him. And the words of Smith, God offered them a choice, experience the wrath of God on the day of the Lord, or seek God and transform your lives before the day of the Lord. 
Those who will humble themselves seek God's mercy and pursue righteousness. And those who do that will enjoy the pleasures of the glorious kingdom of God. The day of the Lord. Two things. One is the divine wrath on God's enemies. Judgment on Babylon, on Edom, on Egypt, on Philistines. It's going to go. Obadiah actually says not just on those uh, specific nations, but on the, all the nations in verse 15 of Obadiah. Isaiah says not just that, but the, all the earth will experience this judgment. And so I want you to understand that this judgment is, is, is uh, severe. It's... it's uh, it's going to come, but it's going to impact the whole earth. And yet there is God's blessing because of that day. And so we're trying to understand, therefore, this concept of day of the Lord. And I want you also to understand that Paul taught this intentionally. Paul was saying, for example, uh, in uh, writing to Thessalonians, in chapter 4, verse 13, he first speaks about what is rapture, right? And he says, now, I don't want you to be uninformed, and he talks about that. But then he gets to chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. This is what he says, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourself are fully aware. I, I don't need to write to you, but you're already aware because you were taught that the day of of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Uh, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And in that passage, there's some, that's a study that you can do from ch chapter 4 and chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. There are at least five things that we can see what happens as a result of the day uh, of the Lord. Why did Paul teach that? In chapter 4, verse 13 of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, he says it's to protect the saints from error, so that they uh, do not err. In uh, chapter 4, verse 18, it's to provide the saints with comfort and encouragement and hope that the day of the Lord would be that to the saints. And in First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, so that the saints would know about the suddenness of the coming of the day. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3, to pick out the counterfeit strategies of Satan. And First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 5 to 6, is to pursue the holiness of God's people. So that when you know that this is happening, that this would spur our thoughts and our desire so that we would be holy as he has called us to. And so Paul teaches the Thessalonian church that. And see how he ends in verses 9 and 11. For God has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. What a comforting verse that Paul ends by saying that this day of the Lord it will come, but those who are in Christ, he has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation. And, and therefore, in Jesus Christ, whether you die or whether you live, that you have him that we live for. And with, with these things, you encourage and build up just as you're doing. And so the day of the Lord, therefore, to those who are in Christ, is a recognition of uh, when the enemies of the Lord, and therefore our enemies, will be destroyed. But not 
but it's also a time of blessing of knowing that we would we would be blessed in the Lord as we already are. And so with that, we encourage and we edify and we build up. And so as we look at the passage that, that's before us, and you must recognize that this passage is also quoted by Peter. On that Pentecost day, he quotes this. And so we'll, we'll, we'll compare this to understand what is happening. So the first is, it says in verse 28, I will pour out my spirit on all Flesh. I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now, I want you to understand the, the dual relationship with what's happening. The first part here, Joel is saying, is Jehovah God who's saying, I'm going to pour out my spirit. But when Peter talks about it, you know what Peter is saying in Acts chapter 2, verse 33? He says, so then exalted to the right hand of God and having received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father, he, that is Jesus, has poured out what you both see and hear. And he had already told his disciples in John chapter 15, verse 26, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father. You see, so Joel is talking about Jehovah the Lord pouring out the Spirit, and then Acts and uh, Peter is saying it's Jesus who sends out, sent out the Spirit that He has poured out in us, and and this dual recognition relationship between uh, the Godhead is something that we should not forget. But this concept of being poured out on all flesh, on all flesh. We touched on this on Friday. Does that mean that everybody is going to get saved? No, it does not mean that every human without exception, it only means every sort of human. It means whether race or gender or geography, all of those will not prevent from God to, to, to have the Spirit of God poured out onto your life, right? And so therefore, you know, wherever we are from, we see that we have experienced the pouring out of God into us. Now, when you use this phrase, pouring out, well, pouring out of a spirit means what? Like, you know, it's just pouring out is how we get uh, the imagery. But Jehovah Witnesses would say, therefore, the Holy Spirit is not a person. He has been poured out. He is not a person. But if you compare Scripture to Scripture, you know that Holy Spirit is a person. And so what does that mean when you say pour out? Uh, John Piper puts it well. He says, God will draw near to make himself known in an intimate and a powerful way. That this pouring out is that intimacy in the Old Testament. Whenever we read about the, uh, about the Spirit of God came upon him, it's this powerful uh, representation that God is there and he is the one who acts through that person. And so this pouring out really means about this intimate and powerful way. And then it goes on to say this God's people will prophesy. He will uh, he will, they will dream dreams, they will see visions, and they will prophesy. So we have to ask ourselves this question, what does that mean, to dream dreams? What does that mean? And as we understand that, you see, let me give you an example. If you were to watch a scary movie, as an example, right? You watched a scary movie, and that night you will have like a nightmare. Do you not? 
Well, some of us have at least, because our minds have got impacted, our hearts are full of it, it's saturated with it, that it plays in our minds. And so in that sense, when you have those dreams and this vision, it's a result of a heart that is overfilled. And then the cause, therefore, is in Luke chapter 4, 6, 45, you read, for out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. And the same principle, what your heart is filled with, will, uh, will consume that. Um, uh, will will cause that, sorry. Um, So the result is the abundance of a spirit-filled heart will cause great things to be spoken about God. Prophecy. They will prophecy. They'll dream dreams, they'll see visions, and they'll prophecy. So there's dreaming where your mind is affected, uh, mind is impacted, and your mouth speaks about the great things of the Lord. And we read the prophecy, the reason for prophecy in First Corinthians chapter fourteen, verse three, so that you would strengthen and encourage and console people. So when you speak about the things of the Lord, this saying forth of things, this prophecy is so that God's people would be encouraged in knowing that there is a God who is. Uh, who, who is the cause of their blessing, right? And so um, this pouring forth into their lives. Now, um, Joel is saying that there is going to come a time when we'll be so filled with God that they'll catch visions of him in daytime, they'll dream about him in nighttime, They'll speak of him constantly. Their conversations would be uh, about God would be a common theme. They, you see, we will be about God. What we think, what we dream, what we speak would be about God. And so it's in that context, I want you to think about what happened in Acts 2. In Acts 2, where Peter is standing up on the day of Pentecost when they were accused that they were drunk. He, he says, no, we're not drunk, but this is what is, was said by Prophet Joel. And I want to call it the, the best example. It's not the fulfillment of uh, what Prophet Joel has said, but it's the best example. Let me give you three quick reasons about why I believe that this is the best example. Now, in Acts chapter 2, verse 11, if you turn to that, Acts chapter 2, verse 11, it says that they spoke about the mighty works of God. The mighty works of God were spoken. It seemed like a natural overflow of their heart. In verse 11, it says, uh, and we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Uh, the, the, the heart was filled, the mouth began to speak. That is what they see uh, out here. And also on that day of Pentecost, we know that, yes, they began to speak in tongues and, 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 and all of that, but there's no judgment. We don't read about the second part of the judgment where the sun and the moon turning dark and, and all of the other things that's happening does not happen there. But also notice the third aspect of how Peter puts it in verse 16. In chapter 2, verse 16, he says that this is what was uttered through prophet Joel. This is what was uttered through prophet Joel. He does not use 
he does not say that the scripture was fulfilled. In chapter 1, verse 16, where uh, he's talking about Judas uh, Iscariot who killed him, you know, who hung himself and all of that. And then he uses this phrase, the scripture was fulfilled. But when he gets to chapter 2, speaking about Joel, he does not say scripture is fulfilled, but he says that this is what was spoken about Joel. So when you put these three things, you recognize that what is happening on that day is a good example of what Joel is trying to say. Listen, when your hearts are poured out, when the Spirit comes into you, when you're filled by the Spirit, your heart will be filled, your, your minds will be occupied, your mouth will not keep quiet, you will speak of the mighty things of the Lord. And I know I had to take you, walk you through this and I hope I didn't lose you but I want you to understand the truth and the principle of what uh, Joel is saying and what Peter is repeating is just this. That this time, that that there is going to come that time that where uh, our conversations are about, are going to be about God. And yet, on the day of Pentecost, as he refers that, he is drawing for an exa- as an example for us as a church, saying that we who are part of that church, in us who we have this indwelling spirit, our conversations need to be about God. Our mind ought to be about God. Our heart must be so overflowing that our mouths cannot keep shut. And that is the message that Um, Joel says and what Peter is repeating. And in verse 32, the way it ends is, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And, And I want you to notice, it's beautiful in that verse 32, this is how it's written, right? In verse 32, it says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered, and the remnant will be those whom the Lord will call. That beautiful thing, we were talking about it on Friday, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man that we spoke on Friday, but we see here that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, and yet it is the one who the Lord calls who would be the remnant. And so we recognize as we sit here that it is all because of God that we are here and we thank God for that and that that this joy of salvation that we have. And in Acts chapter 2 verse 37 Peter has asked this question when they recognize this. Peter has asked this question, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? We understand that. We, I, I understand the impact, the import of what is being said. I understand that. And what shall I do? What should be the response? There has to be a response. And so Peter says in chapter 2, verse 38 of Acts, he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We sometimes think that repentance and, uh, and for asking for forgiveness is our role, and so it equates to receiving the Spirit, but it's the gift of the Holy Spirit. Gift is something that's given to us out of the volition of the giver. It's not because we deserved it. He is the gift. 
And so we, we have the Holy Spirit being given to us, the one who we don't deserve. The pouring out and the resulting intimacy is the Lord's doing. That this fact that we can call, our, uh, as I said about Bilki Sheikh, our day to call him Father, that intimacy with God, this personal relationship that we speak about with God is only his doing. We upon whom the Spirit has been poured upon. And yet, Israel looks ahead to a time where they will turn around, they will see whom they have pierced. And we, we hope and pray to, to be, for that time to be soon when the nation of Israel themselves will turn to, to the Lord their God. And so as we come to chapter 3, in chapter 3, it really starts to begin to talk about what God is going to do to his enemies. In verse 2, he says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. I'll bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Uh, interestingly, in Israel, there's no place called a valley of Jehoshaphat. So the scholars are trying to, you know, find solutions as to how best that is. But if you get to verse 14, this valley is also called the valley of decision. The valley of decision. Your ace, we will call it the value, uh, valley Sorry, of destruction. This valley of Jehoshaphat is the valley of decision. It's the valley of destruction. And we kept saying, that's the message of Joel, that there is a decision to be made, a choice to be taken. That, yes, I want to repent and know who, or go back to this Lord God in whom is salvation alone or be considered the enemy of the Lord and be destroyed. And those who will not uh, repent, they will be invited. They are called in to this valley of Jehoshaphat where he sits down as an arbitrator and as a judge. That's what chapter 3 is. So let me walk you through very quickly chapter 3, verse 2 and 3. The Lord is the advocate and he speaks on behalf of his people. Chapter 4 to 8, it's payback time. God is asking, O Tyre and Sidon and regions of Philistine, are you paying me back for something? Are you trying to do something to me? Listen, if you're, if you're trying to pay me back, I will return your payment to your own head swiftly and speedily. Verses 9 to 11, God challenges, and what he does is he says, listen, go proclaim among all the nations, come for war, fight against me, take your, verse 10, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I'm a warrior. God is challenging everybody, saying, that, listen, if, get everybody, get everybody, whoever has got, take, bring everything that you've got. You know, whether it's, you may not even have a sword, but whatever pruning hook, whatever you God, beat that into a weapon. Come against me. This is exactly opposite to what Israel would say because when, when Christ will reign, it's the time when the swords have been beaten into plowshares. No more need for fighting. And that's the sign that's put up in front of UN, and that's the hope that they have. But yet in Christ, 
we know that's possible. But here at this point, it's a call to all his enemies. You who stood against me, I want you to come fight. And he calls them to this valley of Jehoshaphat. So verse 13 to 15, it talks about the day of the Lord. Then you get down to verse 16. He is the refuge and the stronghold of his people. Verse 19. He will judge Egypt and Edom for all that they did to Judah. But then verse 17 to 21, it's about the glorious future of Jerusalem. It's about uh, the promise. And and see how uh, how that book of Joel ends. For the Lord dwells in Zion. The Lord dwells in Zion. Also verse 18, if you see, a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. We had, we had actually spoken about this, about this water coming out. You see, uh, Ezekiel in chapter 47 and John in the book of Revelation towards the end, he talks about the streams of water coming out from the temple and becoming this river. Uh, Zechariah talks about the streams of water coming out from Jerusalem. But if you look at Jerusalem right now, the topography does not allow for this water to flow. And so we, we recognize that this might be New Jerusalem that God is talking about. We don't know what's going to happen. But out of Jerusalem, there's going to be a stream that's going to come. What did the Lord Jesus Christ say in John chapter 7, verse 338? He says, if whoever believes on me... As the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, you might say, listen, uh, you know, I, I don't read anywhere in the scripture. I don't read anywhere that if anybody believes in Jesus Christ, that out of his heart will flow rivers of flowing water. What are you saying, Lord, that the scripture is saying? This is what you're quoting. And so you bring all this thing to all, all of these passages which talks about the streams of water flowing out from the temple, from, the, from Jerusalem and, and from the cities. And we understand this one thing, that this speaks about the fact that the, the, the Spirit of God who indwells within us, from within us, this, uh, this experience of this abundant life that we have experienced, it's flowing forth to the nations. We are now the recipients, not just the recipients, but we are also therefore the channels of ones of whom how the nations will be blessed. The streams of living water flowing out from off within us because of the indwelling spirit in us. And so therefore, in verse 21, which says, the Lord dwells in Zion. You see, that is the theme of the Bible, isn't it? The book of Revelation ends with the fact that uh, the, the Lord dwells in the midst of his people. And in this indwelling presence that we experience now, and, and, the, and the fact that we, and that the Lord will dwell in us, and that is the core message, the, the, the result of everything that's happening. The flowing out of the river. So it's indicative of the presence of God in the midst of his people. The Lord dwelling in the midst of his people. And so we have those two aspects. The day of the Lord, which is terror to the ones who reject. 
But the day of the Lord that we anticipate, where we have this experience of where God himself is going to come down, dwell in the midst of his people, even as, he, as we have experienced in our own hearts the indwelling spirit. And so the day of the Lord that Joel is presenting, how he brings it so beautifully to say that the Lord dwells in Zion. Our hope and our encouragement is that one day we can say this to be our truth. And so I ask myself in this interim, what should be our response? What is it what is it that I can say, Lord, thank you for speaking to me and showing me from the book of Joel what you have, uh, the message that you have. And I ask myself about my conversation. I ask myself about my life. I ask myself as to if I'm the one in whom the Spirit of God is indwelling, why is it that my conversation is not about God? Why is it that my heart is not overflowing with the things of the Lord? Why is it that my mouth cannot mouth is shut and silent and, and that it would not speak forth of the glories of Christ because if the indwelling spirit is in me and if it is to be that streams of living water for the healing of the nations, then why is it that I'm not that channel where people around me are not impacted? That this filling of the Holy Spirit would have is natural course in my life. We started off by saying that, you know, as we looked at the uh, sermon title, we said, your arms are too short to box with God. And I want to read just a passage of that sermon that he wrote. This is James Weldon Johnson about the prodigal son. He says, young man, young man, your arms are too short to box with God. But Jesus spake in a parable, and he said, A certain man had two sons. Jesus didn't give this man a name, but his name is God Almighty. And Jesus didn't call these sons by name, but every young man everywhere is one of these two sons. And he goes on to say of how the two sons are representative of the two kinds of people that live in this world, the ones who will obey him to do what God has called them to do, and the ones who make up their own religion, make up their own aspects of how they want to serve God. And that's a point to choose. And it says, young man, young man, our arms are too short to box with God. And the fact of the matter is this, that we have to give our will to him. Our will will submit to his will. You see, we either do it lovingly and submissively now, or there will come a time that where we, our will will be submitted to him. Uh, our, the knee shall bow and the tongue confess. And as we were reminded, the, the pledging of the allegiance to him, he is the sovereign one. There's no going about this. Even those who reject uh, have no choice but to recognize that their arms are too short to box with God. One of the things that God has allowed me to do is to do some um, volunteer work with the Voice of the Martyrs, and I speak on their behalf. And so I get these stories that keep coming back from the uh, different parts of the world. And, uh, and I think about them as hell-bent, if you would, 
to eradicate the name of Jesus, especially in the Middle East and, and some, some parts of the Middle East. And that's the, that seems to be the agenda. The, uh, um, you've heard of, uh, even in India, there's a state called Orissa, which, uh, where they had the most severest form of persecution in that state, where um, in 2008, so we, we would be about eight years now of anniversary, and yet, even though India is secular, the uh, justice has not reached this Christians. Uh, more than 100 Christians were killed, many hacked to death by axes and machetes. Uh, 56,000 people are displaced and some forced to go into forest. 5,600 houses burned, 300 churches and Christian institutions burned down. And recently I met this one person who is a missionary going back to this place, even though he's displaced, every once in a while he takes a trip to go back to those very villages which displaced him so that he can go there with the message of Jesus. Streams of living water flowing out of him at great cost, at great cost. And so I, I ask myself, what kind of love is that? It's only the love of the, the agape love that we experience because of the indwelling spirit who teaches us to love our enemies. You've heard of the story of Asia, Asia Bibi. Now, all, she, they were collecting berries. This has been some years. I think, if I'm not mistaken, it's been, uh, it was in 2009, and since then she, is, she has been in prison. So at some point in time, they, one of them asked her to go get some water from a well, and she went to the well. On her way back, she drank from that cup, and because Christians are considered to be of a low caste, that, that the cups that they would drink out of is not honor-worthy, worthy of uh, being drunk from by, the, by the, uh, the Muslims in that place, there was an altercation. And there was always this conflict where they've been trying to convert Asya Bibi to become a Muslim. And, and she said, according to her, she said that, you know, my Jesus died for me. What did your Muhammad do? And that was the reason why blasphemy law was, was put on her. She had to be whisked away, put in prison. Uh, and the two ministers who tried to get her out, they were killed. She was put in solitary confinement. 400,000 signatures across the world have been collected to her release. But the fear is the moment she gets out, there's a $5,000 bounty on her head, and yet she does not give up her faith in Jesus Christ. And I ask myself, why? Because of the indwelling spirit that has the streams of living water flowing out of her. And so the message of Joel is, is impactful. What he said and what was experienced on that Pentecost day is the experience that we can take on every day to ask ourselves, if the Spirit of God is indwelling within us, Will the streams of living water flow out of my, uh, according to your translation, either belly or your heart, 
out of your inner being, whatever it be, that it would be the source of healing to the nations. I pray that for our community here, that that would be true. May God bless us. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for all that you mean to us. Thank you that you would give us your spirit as uh, earnest, as a promise of your soon coming. But while we're here, we pray that we would be sources and channels. We would be ones who will continue to proclaim the glories of Christ, that you alone would be glorified. You alone, Lord, are, uh, even, even as we sang, uh, the tongue can never tell of all that you are uh, and all that you mean to us. And so we pray, Lord, for, uh, for all the heads that are bowed and for the many who are uh, unable to attend uh, today and maybe at different places. We pray, Lord, that uh, for this community, our prayer is, Lord, and for all Christians around the world, our prayer is that we would be that streams of living water that would be the cause for, for healing, for cause for life, cause, Lord, for, for the light to be shed into our dark heart, that you, we would be the channels who God would use for the extension of his kingdom. Uh, we thank you again for all that you are and all that you mean to us. In Jesus Christ, our Lord's name.